Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Spencer Beach. Uh, he's gone through a life-changing event and, and stumbled into a lot of elements around the behavioral side of safety, and is now a motivational speaker around safety. So, Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Or can I call you Mr. Guru? <laughs> no, Eric's just fine. <laughs> and if you could maybe start out by telling me a little bit about your story, and uh, and, and from there, we'll, we'll get into some of your uh, insights around safety and, and driving real impact around safety. Sure. So I grew up as a third generation flooring installer. So basically mm -hmm. hardwood, carpet, vinyl flooring. That's uh, what I did. I went on my first job when I was six years old, which I understand breaks all the safety rules. But back in the <laughs> 1970s, it was a little different. And um, so I grew up in the trades. And when I graduated high school, I knew what I was doing. I followed in my father and grandfather's footsteps. And at the age of 29, I no longer installed floors. I fixed them. I was a service guy on a, on a flooring crew where mm -hmm. we did mostly new homes. And my job every day was to drive around the city of Edmonton, going from new home to new home, fixing other qualified installers' mistakes. Okay. On April 24, 2003, I was sent into a service where I was told to remove vinyl flooring with a chemical because another crew installed the wrong color. Uh, the way my dad taught me is you remove vinyl flooring with a sharp scraper and a lot of sweat equity. My okay. current employer at the time, he had a method where we used a chemical. It was a contact thinner. And uh, skipping a couple steps so nobody can do what I did, uh, basically it would reactivate the glue. The flooring would peel up in sheets. And what used to take days of two full-grown qualified installers uh, to strip a flooring up, my employer had a service guy doing in his off time. Uh, it saved us tons of time and loads of money. Hmm. Unfortunately, there wasn't any safety in the new home industry at the time of my incident. Although the law was there, nobody followed it. Right. So I had no training in chemical use. Uh, I did not know I had the right to refuse unsafe work. True. We didn't do hazard assessments. Any PP I had, I provided myself. It was basically a fend for yourself kind of environment. Wow. And the only rules I had was to turn down the thermostat and open up doors and windows for ventilation when I did this job, which I did do. Mm -hmm. I got to the job. I started working at about one in the afternoon and I had to do the laundry room, hallway, main bath and front entry. And I worked my way from the laundry room down to the front entry as I was working my way out of the house. And at about four in the afternoon, I was almost done. I just had a little bit of flooring behind the front door to do. And I closed the front door to be able to access that. And when I did, the garage door, which I had opened for ventilation, closed. Because oh, no. the air changed. And, yeah. you know, I remember I looked down the hallway and I was just like, I'm going to be locking that door in five minutes. I'm almost done. You know, what's the point of me getting up and reopening that door again? I'm tired of doing that. Right, And so I, I mentally chose to leave my escape route open or closed. Um, and oh, no. 
Right. Yeah. There was another tradesperson. Well, I didn't know that at the time either. But there was another tradesperson in the house. He had just finished his job. He came down the stairs, stepped over top of me, said goodbye, and closed the front door behind him. And when he did that, all of a sudden I heard a loud whistle and then an enormous bang. And fire erupted out of nowhere. It engulfed my entire Oh, my body. goodness. It was the chemical fumes that burnt. And they burnt at 1,500 degrees Celsius. Oh, uh, is more than twice the heat of the average house fire. For our American friends, that's about 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and so I, at that moment, I just went into panic mode. And now mm-hmm. this is where I always tell groups how important it is to have that safety plan done. Mm-hmm. Because when an incident happens, if you don't have a plan, your only plan then is get the hell out of here. You have no right. cohesive route route you're going to take or understanding of what you're going to do it's going to be all just gut instinct trying to get out of the situation so i sprung up from my knees and i grabbed onto the front door handle and as hard as i could i could not open that door and i was a person back then i was used to carrying rolls of carpet and and linoleum and buckets of glue and i didn't have the strength to open that door what had occurred was that whistle just prior to the fire was all the air being pulled into the house through the crevices of the doors and the window seals. And uh, that right. fire required so much, so much oxygen. Um, and that created a pressure difference, which is why I could not open, could the, open door. the door. Yeah. yeah. I had no clue what was happening, though. I just, this door's not opening. So I let go of the door handle, and I turned to my right. I ran through the hallway, past the half bathroom, into the laundry room. And I stopped right in front of the garage door. I grabbed onto that door. It, it didn't open. So I just, and now I was trapped. There was nowhere sure. to go there. So I had to go back to the front entry. I tried that door. It didn't open. So I went back to the laundry room door, to the garage door in the laundry room. I tried that again. It didn't open. I estimate no more than 20 seconds transpired and mm-hmm. for me to do that routine. And I'd had enough. I couldn't take it anymore. The pain was so deep. It was, we've all been burnt. It was nothing like any burn you've ever had. It wasn't a surface burn. I could feel it inside of me. And oh, I could goodness. smell my hair burning and I could, my, the skin on my face felt like it was shrinking. I just wanted it over. And so I collapsed into a ball. I interlocked my fingers with the back of my head. I tucked my face as close to the floor as I possibly could. And I gave up. Um, I had a near-death experience, which... I thought of my wife, her name is Tina, and she was pregnant with our first child. I thought about all the things I was going to miss. You know, I'd been wanting to be a father my entire life. Mm. And now I'm so close to being, achieving that and having the child and I'm going to miss it all. You know, I was never going to help my wife with the chores, the simple things around the house or be there when she needed me the most when she gave birth to our child. And Mm -hmm. for them, I tried one more time. And I got up and tried that garage door, and it opened. What had occurred is because it's a flash fire, the fumes were burning down now, and the pressure difference was dissipating, so I was able to open up that door. Without hesitating, I just jumped into the garage, uh, which at that time, the garage was the garbage disposal area for new home industry. So I fell literally into construction garbage, which if you can imagine is the leftover siding, yep. um, screws, two by fours, oh, you know, some yep. garbage I'm falling into. Nope. And on the very top of it was all the flooring I just removed, soaked in the very in the exact same chemical. Oh, right. And now I'm physically on fire. 
So when I hit that garbage pile, it ignited another fire. The only difference between this fire and the other one was that the overhead garage door wasn't installed. So I could see some, my escape was just 20 feet away from me. And I just regained my balance. I scrambled to my feet as fast as I could. And I ran out of that garage burning from head to toe. I made it almost to the sidewalk before I finally collapsed onto my back into the dirt. And that's my story. That's what happened to me. That's incredible. And and really sorry in terms of the circumstances um, that that you went through. I know one of the themes we had talked about when we we first connect was really around this sense of gut feel. Um, Tell me more about what that means for you and what gut feel you had. So and I, I love the gut feeling thing because it's something everybody has had. Mm. And quite often when we get that gut feeling, we tend to dismiss it. And I was no sure. different. I woke up that morning and I told Tina I didn't want to go to work. And I'm mm. not that type of person. As right. I said, I went to work when I was six years old. I have two older brothers and my dad always chose me to go to work with him because I didn't cry or put up a fuss. I did the work. Right. So when I'm telling my wife I'm thinking of phoning in sick when I'm not, you know, that's, that's just not me. That's out of character. And the reason being was I didn't want to work with that chemical again. Then when Mm. we worked with that chemical, we'd be breathing in the fumes and the fumes would go into our lungs and our lungs would put into our blood. And hours after leaving the job, it would leave our blood out our lungs and I could taste it as it left. Right. I didn't want to taste that again. I didn't want the funny feeling it made in my head again. I knew this wasn't right, but I, as yeah. I said earlier, I also didn't know anything about safety. So my idea was you do what your boss tells you or you lose your job and then your family suffers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I took that feeling of telling my wife, I'm, you know, I don't feel this is right. I'm thinking of phoning in sick. Mm-hmm. And I swallowed that feeling good down deep inside. I put it to where I couldn't hear it anymore. Convinced myself it was going to be just fine. And, and I went to work and I did nothing. This is the worst part is I had this feeling that it wasn't sure. right. And I did nothing about the feeling. Even when I was at work that day, I didn't change one aspect. I didn't speak up at work. I didn't even express my concerns to my employer. I just, right. you know, I was a good soldier and I just, I did nothing. And I now look at that gut feeling and, you know, why didn't I listen to it? You know, like, and the reality is, is I've examined mm-hmm. it. And that was literally, that was me talking to me. Sure. And you got to think about this for a moment. If your gut is you talking to you and then you don't listen to yourself mm-hmm. on safety. If you're not going to listen to yourself on safety, <laughs> what chances are you going to listen to a safety professional or coworker right. or an employer about safety, Right. So that was one of the first things about the gut feeling is we need to start listening to ourselves, you know, because if we don't, yeah, who are we going to listen to, right? Right. And 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 I think it's so important, right? It's such an important message to to get people to to listen when something doesn't feel right, to say something, to speak up. Yeah, for sure. But quite often, though, if you're not going to listen to yourself, are you going to speak up either? No. You know, so there's the mindset there. And this is mm-hmm. where, you know, I focus on people's behaviors because this is where we're going to, there's no rule or policy or procedure or regulation that's going to get somebody to speak up if sure. they don't even listen to themselves. We need yeah. to address the behavior on what's occurring there. 
And what I found is when we do address people's behaviors, the people who tend not to listen to themselves or their guts, they tend to also push back uh, very strongly when you approach their safety. Mm. And I had to examine that. I looked at it, I'm like, why are they pushing so hard? You know, right. and I looked at it, like what other topics in life could, would I, if I talked about, would they push back the same? And I found like, if you talk about people's religion or politics, mm-hmm their sexuality, how to spend their money, their how to raise their kids. If you talk about these things, people tend to push back really strong. For sure. And all those topics are on me telling you how to live your life. Right. So that's, and I looked at them like, so they see safety as me telling them how to live their life. And I totally get it at that moment. It's like, because it mm. has been addressed or brought into workers, like safety is going to be a part of your job. And your job is precious to you. It's part of your identity. So I'm telling you uh, that you're going to be adding something to how you live your life. Right. But safety doesn't, it's not about controlling how you live your life. Right. All safety does is control a hazard so you can continue to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. To me, that's an improvement. So I'm not telling you how to live your life. I'm helping you to live your life. Because I'm helping you control those hazards so that when you're done your job, you can actually go live your life. So, so how, um, I, I love that, that comment. How, how do you propose or how would a leader change their story, their language to, to make sure that that's really the message you're, they're sending? Well, one of the things is you just actually said it. Then <laughs> most people don't realize it, but I hate the word change. In our society, we use that word change all the time. And change is viewed very negatively by people. We avoid change. Honestly, if you give a person to stay the same or go through change, most people will want to stay the same. And Mm -hmm. safety was told to them as a change. And when they heard that then, so a pipe fitter or a welder or a truck driver, they heard, I'm going to change. I don't want to change. (laughs) I like my job. I like doing what I do. I don't want to become this safety thing. I just want to be the pipe fitter. And the reality is, though, we didn't change anything because at the end of the day, as much as we put safety into your job, you're still the welder. You're still the pipe fitter. You're still the truck driver. You're still the millwright. All I did was control the hazards. Mm -hmm. I didn't change your job. I controlled the hazards within your job. And that is an improvement. So Mm. it's in how you use your language. If you said to workers, we're going to change the way we do things around here, which is how safe (laughs) Nobody reacts favorably to that. But if you said, we're going to improve the way we do things around here, people are more open to hearing what you have to say. So language we choose is, and how sure. we use it is very, um, has a, a phenomenal impact on promoting or hurting what we're trying to achieve. Gotcha. Very, very important. So that gets us to vulnerable-based trust. Can you, can you share a little bit about some of your thoughts around this topic? So, yeah, I love vulnerable-based trust is where my passion is taking me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's two types of trust out there. There's predictable trust. And that's like, you know, I, I say I'm going to be here at this time and you trust I will sure. because I'm that type of person. Or if I borrow money, you trust <laughs> I'm going to pay it back because I've proven to you uh, that you don't have to chase me down. Or, you know, if you share a secret, I'm not going to um, go behind your back and, <laughs> and share what it is. You know, that's predictable sure. trust. Vulnerable-based trust, though, is the type of trust where you really are developing the relationship 
with the person. Mm-hmm. And so it's more of like you admit to your mistakes. And yeah. you see politicians, um, now we're Canadian, so we'll use Justin <laughs> Trudeau had multiple different offenses, and he's not quick to admitting to it. And right. what has occurred is people, because he doesn't admit to it, they don't believe in him anymore right. because he hasn't gained that vulnerable trust with people. And it happens with politicians all the time, and they're really good examples to use on what can occur when vulnerable-based trust is not gained with people. But what happens, though, is vulnerable-based trust, if you have people, and I hear this a lot when I'm at mm-hmm. presentations before I'm about to start presenting, and I'm just having conversations with the workers, is the, the company doesn't care in safety. Sure. And then when I hear a statement like that, that means that the people don't believe in the leaders. Sure. And if they don't believe in the leaders and what they're proposing, what chances there that they're actually going to want to follow along with stuff? Yeah, so, sure. And the disconnect then is not in the policies. It's not in the regulations. It's not in the procedures. It's in the relationship between mm-hmm. the management and the workers. And then you, that's where you need to work on it. And that means that management needs to uh, invite the workers in to the policy yeah. development instead of creating sure. everything and being like, here, this is what we could do this change. <laughs> yeah. Or it also means, though, like if you've got overtime, that maybe the management spends some time doing the overtime or they bring in and they develop that relationship. The only way you can develop a relationship with people is by spending time with them. Uh, a simple example I could use is whenever I do safety stand downs for companies, right. is put management not at one table in the front of the room, mix them throughout the room sure. with the workers. So they spend a day with the people. Right. Simple things, but things that have a lot of impact in terms of showing vulnerability and demonstrating that trust that around safety. I think a lot of the themes I also hear is uh, leaders that are talking about safety is the most important thing, but then pivot and will drive productivity. And, and it seems like two different messages side by side, and, and then people don't trust what's being said. And that's, that's one of the problems with the safety first I'm sure we've all heard safety first is safety first was an awesome statement that has been misunderstood. In fact, it's going to be my next safety minute video was on it, but mm-hmm. the reality is, is with safety first and here's what communicating it it's an incomplete sentence. It's missing all the structure of a sentence, which means it's open to interpretation. The workers right. are going to try and plug in what the missing parts of the sentence are. Mm-hmm. And what they did is the workers heard safety is the most important thing we do. And that's a lie. The most important right. thing you do is your actual job is production because you were hired to produce. And mm-hmm. I can prove that. If you spend <laughs> your entire day doing nothing but safety, your company will go out of business. Right. It's just that simple. You need to produce what you're there to produce. And safety or hazards are actually a byproduct of, of production. Sure. So workers know this. They know that they spend 98% of their day on production and 2% of their day on safety. And yet they're told safety is the most important thing you do. Mm-hmm. Or that's what they heard was safety first. The reality is though, in that statement, safety first, it wasn't a matter of importance. It was a matter of priority. Right. And what we were trying to say is not safety is the most important thing you do, but safety is the first thing you do before you do anything else. Right. I think well said. 
This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. Uh, so, so other topic I want to talk about is reactants. You've, you've, you often talk about that topic. Uh, tell me more about what it is and, and what it means from a safety standpoint. So reactance is going back to the gut feeling uh, instance where sure. you don't listen to yourself kind of thing. What reactance is, is by uh, layman definition, is when you make somebody or they're perceived to be made to do something, they will push back. Uh, And you get, the COVID is a great example. Um, I've used COVID as a behavioral experiment Mm -hmm. at the same time as a worldwide pandemic. But before even masks were mandated, people were perceived, they were being told to wear masks. And there was a large part of the society that said, we're not doing it. And they started Mm -hmm. to push back. And then when masks were mandated, they pushed back even further and they created the most phenomenal examples on why they did not need to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. They all of a sudden became experts overnight on it. And <laughs> I can tell you from someone who was in isolation and germs was the one thing that could kill them. Yeah. I, my ICU doctors and nurses and everyone, they wore masks entering my room and my room was specially made that germs could not enter it. The only way germs could enter is from people. And these professionals were wearing masks to prevent germs from leaving their body to get to me because they work. And these weren't fancy (laughs) masks. These were just normal paper masks that you would find in a hospital setting. Sure. But they work. But people went to phenomenal um, means Mm -hmm. on trying to promote why they didn't need to wear a mask because they pushed back. There's a couple things about reactants that we need to know. And one is everyone is prone to reactants. We're all prone right. to push back. You just have to know which topic it is that uh, you hold close to. Mm-hmm. And so for some people, if you talk about religion, they push back. Sure. Uh, other people, and gun control is a great example. You talk mm-hmm. about gun control, especially in America, boom, people are going to push back because it's close to them. And they, they're being perceived that they are being made to give up their guns or being perceived that they're being told that they're not allowed to be religious and they push back. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with safety. They're being perceived that their job is changing. So they push back. And the way to deal with that reactance then is you need to include people in the process. When you include them in the process, the developmental process, they become more um, in tune to want to go along with the development because of the process, because they were part of the development of it. Yeah, for sure. They, they were involved. It was partly their ideas. They were listened to all things that reduce the barriers to change. We know that um, yeah. the more, the more it's part of a change I was part of, the less likely you are to, to, to respond negatively to it. Yeah. I do think though, when you talk to management about mm-hmm. involvement of people in the process, they're like, well, that's going to slow down production. And it's true. No. You're going to have to pull people off the floor <laughs> and bring them to the development. But you're yeah. going to save so much time on the back end the road on yes. having to correct this reactance behavior. 
mm-hmm. that in the long run you will have a net gain on the amount of time you save instead of a net loss on pulling people off the line for the time it takes to develop the process. Yeah, there's been a lot of research that was done on this, just this very topic around um, the total time doesn't change. It's just where you're spending it. It's either you're spending it at the front end, getting a better solution, or you're spending it on the back end, trying to get people to do something um, that they don't want to do. So the in, in many cases, it's actually the opposite. It may be faster to involve people to go a little bit slower at the front end, um, but then you get adoption, acceptance. Yeah, and there's one more benefit to it, and I have a mm-hmm. leadership presentation I do where at the end we do an origami session, and okay. I stand up making a box. Everyone has a piece of paper, and there's it's the only slide in all my presentations that have any PowerPoint uh, bullet points on it. And in there are just 10 simple instructions. And mm-hmm. I invite people at the very beginning, I'm like, if you have any questions, ask them. You know, but sure. I'm also doing it from a, I'm a leader standpoint and we got to get moving on here because, you know, there's stuff to be done for today. And I go through the PowerPoint or the, the origami session. And at the end of it, about 10% of the audience, it's always about 10% <laughs> get what I was wanting to achieve. And what happened was I just sucked at being a leader. I didn't engage my uh, the people in any way that was in a positive way. So the 10% of people that got it were the ones that excelled at being able to take written form and understand what it was saying. Sure. But then after this failed and the experiment failed and uh, 90% of the people have crumpled up paper, I make them use the same paper and I'm like, we're going to get a much better result. And all I do is I take the people that got what I wanted the first time and I tell them, help the people in your group. And mm-hmm. because they weren't before, right? So I actually have to like, go help the people. You know what it is I want, go help them. And I leave my podium and I go down and I help the audience too. We spend mm-hmm. the same amount of time and there's, I don't even go through the bullet points anymore. I put the slide up, but I don't touch them at all. Mm-hmm. And I have a 90% success rate just by empowering people. And what it does is that reactance. Now I've cut the reactants because I've helped people mm-hmm. with development, but they've also become my leaders. And they now are on the floor, saving me time on communicating to the vast majority of the people. And I only go to a few tables during yeah. the presentation, that second part. And I have this whole squad of people doing the exact same thing. And we achieve so much more success. And the best part of the entire exercise is the room goes from stubbornness and frustration and <laughs> anger to laughter and joyfulness and people are happy and they want to be there all because I've changed how I, how I led. I love it. Uh, I, I love all the themes you talk to, you talk to, because uh, they, they, they're very, very powerful themes that also touch to the role leaders have in creating a great environment and really reflecting as to how you show up, how you demonstrate vulnerability, how you engage and involve people in the, in the decision-making process, all things that are easy, simple to do, um, but have a very tangible, meaningful impact in increasing adoption, acceptance of, of uh, practices around safety. Um, and I love the, this comment you made around st- stop telling people how to live their lives, really thinking about, really in terms of how to redefine how we talk and message around safety. Yeah, I, I like to believe that everybody's a leader. Yeah. And so you have leaders that are pulling the company mm-hmm. along. You have leaders that are fighting the company. 
and the other workers are seeing them as leaders and they're they're joining in that group and then you have leaders in training but you know it's identifying who these leaders are and those are the people those subgroups that you should be pulling into your developmental processes take the people who already believe in the company and what they're doing get the people who are fighting it and bring them in so you they they're heard and then bring in a couple people who are leaders in training and when you do that i think you're going to find that uh, you'll engage the people's behaviors and improve the rollout of your policies and procedures. Yeah, I, I love it. Incredibly powerful message and, and simple to, to, to make uh, happen within an organization. Uh, so Spencer, you, you talk about safety to a lot of groups. Uh, you present, share ideas. Uh, if somebody wants to uh, reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Uh, just through my website. It's uh, spencerspeaks.ca, or you can just Google my name, Spencer Beach. And you'll find either a real beach in Hawaii, which I've been to, or me. Uh, so it's pretty simple to, to find me. And from there, yeah, we'd, um, I'd, I'd love to come out and speak to your people. I have a, a unique presentation style where my goal is I reach to people's hearts. And I found, and so when I'm speaking to workers, I don't use PowerPoint because I'm motivating and motivation right. doesn't require PowerPoint. Sure. And what I found is I could use PowerPoint and try speaking to their head, but they wouldn't hear me as loud. Sure. Because when I speak to people's hearts, your heart actually talks to your head louder than I could talk to your head. So that's my whole presentation is based on people's hearts. And I'm there to, to help put that safety policy that's sitting on a shelf into the worker's hands. And that's my whole goal is when it's in the worker's hands, that's where safety belongs. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Spencer, for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom. I appreciate the time you thought through to come up with these ideas and really communicate it to the listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Like what we do? Share this on your socials and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy, distinguish yourself from the pack, grow your success, capture the hearts and minds of your teams, fuel your future. Come back in two weeks for the next episode or listen to our sister show with the ops guru, Eric McCroskey.